0: here. Um, this, uh, this morning and this evening, in fact will be in the book of First John um, back in my home church at Bridwell Heights uh, in the evenings I've been going through First John. so I selected uh, two portions of First John chapter 3 for us to look at this morning and this evening, uh, both on the theme of love, um, both fundamental um, truths for, for us to understand. Um, this morning, in 1 John uh, chapter three, verse one is our scripture text, uh, considering the love of God uh, and, the, and the vital truth uh, that we have in this text that we need to really dive deep into. And then this evening, um, our call to be loving uh, toward one another. So I trust you'll uh, be back for that as well. So this morning, 1 John chapter three, verse one is our, our scripture text, just the, the first verse of chapter three. So 1 John chapter three. Verse 1. This is God's word. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Our Heavenly Father distractions abound in our own hearts but I pray that as this text really commands us as an imperative that we would really look into the love that you have for us that we would not skate over top of this this great truth this great theme of the whole Bible your great love for your people We pray that we would receive it, that we would focus on it, that you would remove temptations from our heart, that you would remove distractions uh, on other cares, other worries, that we would simply throw those cares and worries onto you as you have told us to and receive your word this morning. Please help us, Lord, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure you know from experience, as I do, when, when you can look at something, but you can kind of just overlook it at the same time. You can recognize something around you, but unless you're, you're diving deep into it, you're not really understanding it. You don't have that close examination of a thing. You, know, you can look at something, but then you can really look at something uh, in, in depth. For example, you can look at a painting. You can think of some sort of you know, masterpiece in your head. You can think of it, but maybe you haven't really examined that painting. You know, studying the subject of it, uh, the composition. You know what it's what it's painted with. You know, tracing out all the details, the layers of it, really to, to gra- try to grasp the depth and really the majesty of that masterpiece. Or you could take, for example, a flower. You've all seen flowers. You see them probably every day. But unless you really look at it, seeing the the various hues of color in the petals, the, the veins that run through the plants, even just how it's organized and designed, yes, in a beautiful way, but of course in a wise way as well so that it actually functions as a plant. You can look at the thing, but unless you really look at it, you're really missing out on the depth of the beauty of it. And that same phenomenon is also true with the Christian's view of the love of God. We can see the love of God. You can have an understanding of the love of God. You say, yes, I know that God loves his people, a cursory appreciation of it. But then at the same time, you can fail to really grasp it, to really understand it. So we really need to, to, to be thinking on this issue to take a deeper dive into knowing God's love for us, to move on from that surface level and dive deeper. And I would say, and I believe, that the failure on the part of Christians to really dive deep and understand God's love for us is one of the reasons why Christians oftentimes lack joy. Isn't that the case? Are you somebody who lacks joy? In 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 4, John tells us one of the purposes of this whole book is this. He says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So that's one of the purposes of 1 John. And I have no doubt that this text in 1 John 3 this morning is one of those great sources of joy for the Christian, if you will actually take it to heart. One of these purposes of John is to have our joy made complete or full. Now, I want to say this too. For some, I'll say for some, in the world of Reformed theology, Reformed churches, sometimes for some in those groups, which I'm a part of, you're a part of, talking about the love of God can almost be viewed as if it's a bad word. The love of God. I remember a story that uh, Paul Washer told. If you don't know who Paul Washer is, he's a Reformed Baptist uh, preacher. He told a story about, uh, in his home church, now he's not the pastor of his home church, but he does teach there. He was teaching three consecutive Wednesday night Bible studies. And there was a family that was visiting the church for those three Wednesday nights. And at the end of those three weeks, that family went to the pastor who was not Paul Washer, but they went to the pastor and said, hey, can we talk to you? And he said, yeah, what's going on? He says, they said, pastor, has, has Paul Washer gone soft? Has he compromised on the word of God? And the pastor said, well, why would you say that? And they say, because all he's been talking about for three weeks is the love of God. Now, think about it. why Why would they equate compromise with a consistent preaching on the love of God? You see, people think sometimes that if you're not hitting on the harder stuff, people may call it, if you're not preaching simply only on, on hell and reprobation and the wrath of God, all things which are biblical and true and ought to be preached without embarrassment, but if you're, pre- if you're not preaching on those things and you're preaching on love, that somehow you've compromised on Scripture. Although it's true that there are many Christians who would altogether ignore those harder doctrines, that does not mean that a Christian is permitted to ignore one of the major themes of the entire Bible, the love of God. The love of God ought to be everything to the Christian. And we need to view it like that. See, if you don't value the love of God, hopefully then, by the end of this sermon, by the end of today, you'll have a deeper appreciation for it. So the theme this morning is the love of God. And like a painting or like a flower, we're going to take a deeper look at it. Look at it on a, on a more thorough level instead of just giving it a quick glance. So let's look at the verse. Look at 1 John 3.1. He says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Okay, so let's just stop there for a moment. Look at the first word. He says, see, or behold. Okay, that word, uh, what he's saying is he's calling us to attention here. He's saying, look at something here. Look, focus. Now, the next phrase, what's he telling us to focus on? The New American Standard says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. But really, if it was a more uh, literal translation there, it would say, say, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us, or what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Now that word for what kind of or what manner of love is used in the Bible oftentimes to express astonishment. You may recall the scene where Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and the storm is all around them. They're scared to death. And then they say, Come on, save us. And he does. And he says to the winds in the sea, you know, Be still. And it, and it calms down. What's the disciples' response to Jesus? They say in Matthew 8, The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're saying, This man is astonishing. We've never seen somebody like this. He's out of this world. Amazing, stunning, spectacular. And that's the word that John uses here when he calls us to attention to the love of God. See what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us. He's given us love beyond comprehension. Amazing, stunning, mind-blowing love that we've never experienced anywhere else. Not Love that we've never even heard of anywhere else. It's a love that absolutely floors us out of this world. So John is just erupting with astonishment at the love of God here in this text. So he's saying, look at this, behold this. The love of God is astonishing. What kind of love he has bestowed on us. This is something that you and me as Christians have to make our lifeblood for daily living. Standing back, focusing in on the love of God that he has for you as an individual in his church. Not just some faceless corporate body, but you as a blood-purchased individual that he elected for salvation. I want you to think about it. How would it affect your life if you actually did what John said here? Focusing in on what kind of love the Father has for you. How would taking an awestruck look at the love of God affect your anxiety? How would it affect your sense of guilt over your sins? or your assurance of your salvation, your worries about your family, your daily stresses, your fear of man, your devotion to the Lord. How would understanding the love of God affect this, these things and things like them? Would not a deeper understanding and an awestruck wonder at the love of God just downright you know, revitalize and reshape and, and reform your whole life as a Christian. So John says, he says, behold this, look at this. And that's what we're going to do, looking at taking a deeper dive in amazement at the love of God. Now, what, what John is saying here, he's drawing us our, our attention here to a specific aspect of God's love for us, and that's his love for us in adoption, his adopting us into his family. So John's saying here that God's love for his people is truly amazing. And, and it's true, every part of our salvation, including adoption, is motivated by the love of God. Just think about this just for a moment. Our election, God's sovereign election and his choosing people to save, that is rooted in God's love for his people. Listen to Romans eight twenty nine. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Now that, that word foreknew means specifically that God loved them before him, that he set his special love on individuals. So what's the motivation behind uh, predestination is his foreknowledge, his love for them, his foreknowing them, an intimate choosing of them. Our calling and being born again is also motivated by the love of God. Listen to Titus 3. It says, But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's being born again. So why did God do that? Because of his great mercy and love. Our justification. That is, our being declared righteous and being forgiven of all our sins on account of Jesus' work. That's motivated by the love of God too. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So all of these things, uh, these aspects of salvation, they're motivated by the love of God. But yet John moves beyond all of those glorious things and focuses our attention on the issue of adoption, something that I think Christians in general simply don't focus enough attention on. John wants us to focus on something that really, in a way, goes beyond all of those other things, election, regeneration, justification. He goes, it goes, adoption takes it a step further. So he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And that's referring to adoption. So that raises the question then, doesn't it? We're talking about adoption, well, what is it? What is adoption? The uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism asks that very question and says, Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Now that answer is just packed full of implications that's a dense answer so let's break it down for a minute first of all god's adopting us as his children is a gracious act of god a gracious act so first of all it's not an ongoing process it's not something that you earn it's gracious god does not put you on a a probationary period to see if you're faithful enough before he'll adopt you right it's a gracious act that he brings you into his family. So by grace, he receives in a one-time act, an act that the results continue forever, he receives his people as his sons and daughters. So he, he brings you into his family, and you are his son or daughter forever from that point on. And he calls us his children. That's what adoption is, first of all. It's a gracious act. Now this raises a few questions. This is a crucial question. What did God do so that he could adopt us? You ever thought about that? See, for some people, that question would be totally unnecessary because they would say, well, everybody is a child of God just by existing, just by being creative. But if that were the case, which it is not, then adoption would be really an entirely redundant and unnecessary act, wouldn't it? It's like me trying to adopt my own biological children. Well, they're already my children, so adoption would be unnecessary. But since Scripture does teach that we are adopted by God in Christ, and we are not God's children by nature, adoption is necessary. So the question again is, what did God do so that he could adopt us? Really, it's all of God's saving work brings us up to that point where we can be adopted into God's family. But let's just talk about two things. Just consider these two things that God did in order that we could be adopted. The first is election. His gracious electing of his people. Consider Ephesians 1. Verse 5 and 6, it says, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So, in other words, God, before creation, chose his people to be his sons and daughters. And as I said before, the text says that in love he did that. He predestined us to be adopted. So your adoption, if you're a Christian, your adoption by God is not an afterthought. He wanted you as his child, not because of anything you have done, but he he wanted you as his child from before the foundation of the world because he is loving, because he is gracious. Not because he saw something good in you, but because of who he is. And let me just say briefly by a point of application here, I don't know what kind of earthly father you may have had or have. Maybe you have a father who's characterized by excellence and, and uh, love. Maybe you have a distant father. Maybe you even have an abusive father. But I want you to understand that, that any, a, a, every sin and every deficiency in your father, and for every father there's going to be some at least, and some are greater than others, but all the failings of your earthly father are more than drowned out in the love of your heavenly father that he has for you, in choosing you to be his own son or his daughter. You have to understand, you were desired by God from before the foundation of the world, not because you have done well, Not based upon your performance, but simply because he is gracious and loving. And because of that, think of the implications. And because his love is not conditioned upon your performance, his love for you will never change. It cannot become greater. It cannot become lesser. He will not love you more if you move an inch to the right or if you move an inch to the left. His love is perfect because it's not dependent or conditioned upon your performance. It's a love that he had before you did anything. A love before you were even created. A love that is eternal. A love that is perfect. So our election brings us to the point where God can adopt us because he predestined us for adoption. The other thing I want to consider here that God did so we could be adopted is he justified us. Justification. So because God has chosen you in Christ to be adopted. He has also planned all the means necessary to make you acceptable to him so that you can be adopted as his son or daughter. What that means is this. In order for you to become his adopted son, he sent his one and only son by nature to save you. Remember I read from Romans 5 earlier that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and therefore we are able to be justified by him. In 1 John 4, 10, it says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What that means is that God loved us so that he sent his Son to take the punishment for our sins in our place so that we would not be punished for our sins. Christ is our our legal advocate, our, our defense attorney before God. And he holds up before God the Father his own death as the basis for our acceptance before him. So Jesus' righteousness where he kept the law on our behalf and his death on our behalf where he took the penalty for our sins, that's how we're justified before God. When we stand before God as a Christian saved by Jesus, we are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. So when God looks upon us, he sees us as perfectly righteous. He will not count our sins against us anymore. He will not remember our sins against us, he says in Hebrews 8. We are legally accounted righteous by God in the courtroom. But adoption takes it just a step further. We stand before the judge in the courtroom and Jesus stands up and says, accept them on the basis of my righteousness and my death on their behalf. And the father says, of course, just as we planned, I do accept them on the basis of your work. But I'll take it a step further. And he, pres- he not only declares you perfectly righteous, but now he presents you with adoption papers. He not only declares you righteous, but the judge actually takes you into his home forever as his son or daughter. It takes it, it, justification and adoption just ups the ante, it takes it a step further in love and graciousness. And that brings us to the next question. Since God did everything, he, he chose us to be adopted, He sent His Son so that we could be acceptable to Him and be adopted. What's the benefit of being adopted by God? What are the benefits of having God as our Father? And it said in that catechism question, it says, all the privileges of sonship. And that's there's just so many. Here, here's just a few. The privileges of sonship. What's the benefit of being adopted? Firstly, knowledge that we are the sons of God. God doesn't keep us in the dark with regard to our adoption. We can know it. We know it. In Romans 8, 15, it says this. It says, you have, received, you have not received a spirit of slavery Leading a fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So, in other words, you don't have a fear of punishment and hell for your sin, because you know that God loves you as a child. Galatians four six similarly says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So It's like this. Believers, when they're converted, have an understanding that they have now been received into God's family. When you're a believer, now you regard God as your father. You regard God as the one whom you desire to please. You know, earlier in 1 John, John said this about new converts, new Christians. He says in 1 John 2.13, he says, I've written to you, children, new converts, I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. That's the characterization of the new convert. They know the Father. They may not know a lot of other things, but they do know this, that God is their Father. So the first benefit of adoption is that we know that God is our Father. Secondly, the benefit of adoption is that is God's provision for us and his good gifts to us. In Matthew 7, 9 through 11, Jesus taught us, or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? You see, if you have God as your Father, you have your Father in heaven will provide for your spiritual and your physical needs. He cares for you. He says he knows how to give good things to his children. In fact, stunningly, he can say this in Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So God is such a great father to you that literally everything that happens in your life is for your benefit and for your good. There are bad things that happen, but God uses it. He purposes it for good for you. Just like Joseph, sold into slavery, falsely accused and put in prison, all for his good and benefit. So God knows how to give good things to you. He works everything for your good as your father. Thirdly, benefit of adoption is you have God's fatherly care, compassion, and forgiveness. In Psalm 103, 12 and 13, he says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You see, even with earthly fathers, if your child uh, sins, you don't want them condemned. You don't, you don't vie for the death penalty for them, right? When they sin, you have compassion on them. You want them to repent and follow the Lord, but you're ready to forgive them. And the Lord likewise, he says, is forgiving, but infinitely more so and perfectly. He does not condemn his children. God does not condemn his children. He has compassionate forgiveness for them. And he always forgives perfectly without fail. You cannot be disowned by God if God is your father. Fourthly, I want you briefly just to turn here with me because it's a longer text. Hebrews chapter 12. This is one of those benefits of adoption that you might not view as a benefit when you're in the midst of it. It's the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of God. Hebrews twelve five. Look at this with me, please. This is, if you understand this, this can change your life. <laughs> Hebrews twelve five through 11. On the discipline of the Lord. He says, Hebrews 12, 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Here's a quote from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So what's the point? That God disciplines His children, because that's what loving fathers do. What's the motivation? It says it right there. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So if you're his child, his discipline for you is not motivated by hatred. It's not motivated by retribution. It's motivated by love. The author of Hebrews explains, looking at verse 7, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline it's a real basic thought there isn't it every decent father disciplines their son and god's more than a decent father he's perfect father so what what father is there who does not discipline his son in verse 8 he says but if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons in fact discipline is so fundamental to being a father that if God does not discipline you, that is evidence that you are not his son. Because a father disciplines his own children, he does not discipline the children of others. So if you are disciplined by God, that's evidence that he loves you and that you're his child. Verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we much not rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? Here's the point. When a father disciplines his children, the children in general submit to that, right? And they will learn from that. He's saying, we did that. Our fathers, they they disciplined us and we respected them. How much more should we respect God for his discipline for us? Remember, the exhortation in Proverbs is, don't despise the discipline of the Lord and don't grow weary of it. And I guess those are the two things that I am most apt to do under the discipline of the Lord. To say, this isn't fair, I despise it, or go weary of it. How long will this go on? It says, this, "This is miserable." And not seeing, what, what is God training me to do? What is He teaching me here? He says, "We had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them, so we much not rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live, for they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He, God, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. I think that's great. And you fathers uh, know this well. You discipline your kids. You try your best. You, you want what's best for them. You're trying to do what's good, but you know you don't do it perfectly. It says they did what seems best to them when you only discipline your child so long as they're in your house. When they grow up, they're no longer under your discipline. So it's a short time. But God, we always have him as our father our whole lives. We don't turn 18 and then he stops disciplining us. And moreover, his discipline is not... Um, I'm trying my best, it is he disciplines you perfectly. He disciplines you for your good without fail. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. And there's the great purpose. God disciplines you out of love because he wants you to be holy. He wants you to follow after him closely. And verse 11 says plainly what we know from experience. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So discipline in the moment isn't fun. and It's not pleasant. But if you've been trained by it, it says, afterwards it'll yield in you fruit, righteousness. See, to some it feels like discipline is a negative thing. For some it feels like God hates me because he's causing grief in my life. But it's all backwards. He says he disciplines you because he loves you as his child. Now, it's not as though that God enjoys causing you grief. Just like a good father you know, doesn't get a kick out of spanking their children. But I do that to my children because I love them. I want them to follow the Lord. And God does it for, God does it for the same reason. He will discipline you so that you will follow him better. You'll have that righteous fruit. God does it perfectly, without inconsistency. He tells us in Lamentations 3, he says, For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, which he does, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. What what that means is this, is that God, again, God does not get some kick out of making you cry. He will give you grief, out of love for you, so that you will become more righteous. It has a very perfect and good purpose behind it. It's motivated not by hatred, but by love. He only wants you to become more like Christ, and that's why he trains you in that way. Now I want to bring this to an application here on this one as well. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, then that means you hate sin. Okay, That's part of being born again. You hate your own sin. You want to be rid of it. And here's the kicker. If you say, I hate sin, I want to be rid of it, but then you despise the discipline of the Lord, you can't have it both ways. Follow me? The discipline of the Lord is to get rid of your sin in your life. And then you say, God, stop it. Well, if you want to get rid of the sin in your life, then thank God, teach me, Lord, train me. The discipline of the Lord may be because of some sin in your life or not. It could be like Job, where he was disciplined by the Lord, not because of some specific sin, but just so that Job would be even more righteous, which was the result. So if you hate your sin, then thank God that he loves you enough to discipline you and not to let you run wild like an unloving father would. In Proverbs 20, verse 30, he says, blows that wound cleanse away evil and strokes make clean the innermost parts. That's the discipline of the Lord. He will strike you, so that you will be rid of your sin. So that's another great benefit of being adopted as his son. He loves you enough to discipline you, to train you to be righteous. Otherwise, you would run wild. Lastly, for our consideration this morning, another benefit of adoption is the inheritance that the father gives you. In Galatians 4, 7, he says, Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. We are the heirs of God. We have an inheritance awaiting us. And of course you know what our inheritance is. It's eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. Peter tells us this, First Peter 1, to 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's the part to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We will receive an inheritance. It's not of money that will fade away on earth, but an imperishable inheritance of glorification in heaven, eternal life with God, knowing him that will last forever. In Revelation 21, 6 and 7, we have... The inheritance and adoption connected yet again he says and then he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end i will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost and listen he who overcomes will inherit these things and i will be his god and he will be my son in other words those who abide in christ by faith Those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation will receive the inheritance of eternal life promised to them in Christ. It's that free gift of God the Father to his sons and to his daughters. He will be our God. We will be his sons. So those are some of the benefits of adoption. You look at those things, you see how amazing that really is that he would give us all of that. And you say, why? Why? Why would God love us in this way? Why would God send his one and only son, whom he loves perfectly and who is perfect, why would he send Jesus to die for putrid sinners, to justify them and then adopt them into his household and then give them every good thing? As Romans 8 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The point being, he gave you the greatest thing he can give you, his only son. He'll give you everything else. He'll give you every good thing that he can give to his children. So, why would he do that? That should be the question. And here's the profound answer. It's because he loves us, period. It's, it's not because you were worthy of it. It's not because you were lovable. It's not because you were good, but because, because God wanted to. It's like what he says in, in Deuteronomy 7 to, to Israel. He says, basically, why did I love you? Why did I choose you as my chosen nation? Oh, well, it's not because you were the biggest nation, because you aren't. Um, I love you because I love you, is his, his answer. Why does God love us? Well, as 1 John 4, 8 we'll say later on, because God is love. It's just who he is. He loves you because that's who he is. So we, we are adopted right now. If we're Christians, if we have trust in Jesus, we are adopted right now. And that should, just like John here, that should bring amazement to your heart. John says, what manner of love is this that we would be God, called God's children? And he says, and we are, and such we are. We are indeed his children. So, so to sum this up and to show the great privileges of adoption, just understand this. The fact is that since we're children of God, God loves us as he loves Jesus. I have to agree. Listen, listen to what Jesus himself said in a prayer to God the Father in John 17. He says to the Father, that you, the Father, sent me, Jesus, that you sent me and loved them, the church, and loved them even as you have loved me. He's saying, God the Father, you have loved your church like you have loved me, your son, Jesus. I have to agree with what Stephen Lawson said here. He says, if that wasn't in the Bible, I couldn't believe that. But it is in the Bible, so we must believe that. That God loves me, his adopted son, just like he loves Jesus, his son by nature. How is that possible? Can you, can you really, even with all of my sin? Yes, because you're clothed in the perfect righteousness of God. He does not see your sin. He he accepts you and sees you as clothed in the perfection of Jesus, with whom he is well-pleased. You're wearing the prince's clothing. You're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. He has nothing to charge you with. And he looks upon you with the same love that he looks upon Jesus, his son. So, the application here, first of all, is this. As John says, First, stand in amazement at God's love. Uh, Joel Beakey said this, he says, Do you stand in awe of this wonderful love of the Father? Holy wonder and amazement is an important part of Christian experience. One of the devil's tactics is to dull our sense of wonder, convincing us that we only feel such wonder in the initial stages of becoming a Christian. It's true that the sinner experiences a special sense of joy and wonder when he first comes to know Christ. We often refer to this as the time of one's first love. But you'll recall in Revelation 3, Jesus rebukes the church at Ephesus for for leaving their first love. They lost their zeal to love the Lord. That joy that we have as new converts should not dwindle away. In fact, it should increase as we grow. Bicky, he goes on, he says, We must meditate on Scripture if we would have our hearts burn within us. That is what the pilgrims on the, on the way to Emmaus said to each other after Christ had opened Scripture to them. They said, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the Scriptures? They asked in astonishment, Is it any wonder that some believers have lost their sense of wonder and amazement over the gospel when they so seldom study the Bible prayerfully and meditatively, End quote. So he, he's saying just what John is saying here. You have to look at the love of God. Behold the love of God. Now, let me lay this out for you. How can you look at it? How can you look at the love of God? It's by studying what he has said in his word about it. There's no other way that you can know what God has said about himself and about his love for you unless you know the Bible, unless you read the book he's given to you that explains it all. So, if you want a a motivation to read the Bible, read the Bible to know God's love for you better. Now, a second application, besides just looking into the love of God, John himself brings us another application here. It's the last sentence. First John 3, 1, it says, For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So here's the second application. Since Christ, God's son, was unknown to the world, therefore God's adopted sons won't make sense to the world either. So the objective fact is this. If you're a Christian, then you're not in the same family as the world. You're in a different family. Jesus was not from the world. He was from the Father. And it says the world did not know him. John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. See, likewise for us who are God's adopted sons and daughters, we're not going to be known by the world either. <laughs> and that's the way that it ought to be. He's saying you're of another family. You're of another world, really. The Biki again says this, the reason the world does not know the children of God is because it did not know Jesus. This reaction of the world is evidence of the believer's adoption into God's family. For the world did not know Jesus either. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was in the world, it was created by him, but the world knew him not. The world did not recognize him as the Son of God. Ultimately, it crucified him. When a sinner is born again and brought into God's family... He comes to know the great blessings of deliverance in Christ, but the believer also discovers that worldly people no longer understand him. You know, he told, Joel Beeke told a story um, about when he was converted as a teenager. Um, it actually reminds me uh, somewhat of my own uh, conversion, where he had to uh, break off some of his former relationships that he had before he was a Christian. Uh, and one of his friends told him, his former friends, when he became a Christian, they said, Joel, I just don't understand you. I thought I knew you, but I don't. And he says, it's like we're living in two different worlds. And that's exactly right it. That's exactly what it is. We're living in two different worlds, or, or two different families. You see, since God has made you his child, he's adopted you, actually, in fact, he's adopted you from another family from another father jesus taught in john 8:44 to unbelievers he said you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father and later on in first john 3 verse 10 by this the children of god and the children of the devil are obvious anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of god nor the one who does not love his brother two families two fathers Do you have God as your father or you have Satan as your father? The child of God is unknown by the world because they have different fathers. The children of God and the children of Satan plainly don't mix, is the point. The world is blinded by their father Satan and they therefore will not understand you. They will not get you. You are going to be weird to them. I like how uh, Steve Lawson illustrated this point. He said... The world doesn't understand you. The world doesn't understand, for example, why you get up on a Sunday morning and get dressed and perhaps, you know, drive through traffic to come into a building to sing hymns, of all things, some of which are hundreds of years old, and then to listen to a man preach at you from a book that's minimally 2,000 years old and even older, and then reach into your pocket and uh, give your hard-earned cash to support the ministry of that church. See, why wouldn't you rather be at the golf course or sleeping in or spending your money on yourself? The world is saying, what's wrong with you people? The world just won't understand why Christians would, you know, would, would, would stand up uh, and take abuse from people for standing up for the rights of the unborn, for example. They wouldn't understand why a, a Christian may, may get up on a Saturday morning and, and hand out tracts to people. They say, why would you do that? Such a, it's so weird. Why, why would a Christian, for example, refuse a promotion at work because it requires him to move to a different city where there aren't any good churches? Because I'm not going to take more money and put my family in that situation. They're going to say, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? It's a great opportunity. And the Christian doesn't see it that way. They say, no, it's, it's really not. See, anything... See, see the, the world's motivations for life are these. John lays them out in John 2. The, 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 to, to fulfill the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is, the world lives to indulge themselves and make themselves feel good. They live to possess things and get as much stuff as they can. And then to boast and say how awesome they are and how much better they are than everybody else. If you think about those three things, those really are the three motivations that the world lives for. And anything that does not fit into those categories, the world just won't understand. Self-denial, unselfishness, self-sacrificial decisions, that's not going to make sense because the world's all about selfishness, self-love, and things of that nature. The world just doesn't understand us because we're not of this world. We're on a different path entirely, a different family. See, we're aiming to please a different father we aim to please god as our father and they aim to please as jesus says their father the devil your will is to do your father's desires he said so that the minute that the world starts understanding us and saying yeah yeah that makes sense there might be something off in our lives because we're in such different families we our fathers are can't be more diametrically opposed to the father versus satan and therefore we are in a very different family from those who are unbelievers. So in conclusion this morning, since we are God's children, let us aim to please our Father, who has loved us with a perfect, eternal love, as we've seen this morning. And not to concern ourselves with trying to please the world and what the world thinks of us. Not to do what the world thinks life is all about. They're, they're just following a totally different path. Family. They're aiming to please a totally different father. It's no surprise that we're going different directions. So, with John here, stand and wonder at the father's love that he's lavished on you. Really stand and look into it. That we should be called children of God. And then let us aim to serve and please him and and not love the world and the things in the world. God calls us his children. And such we are. Now this evening, we'll be looking at one of the applications of this truth. Seeing how great the Father has loved us with love. Later on in 1 John 3, he calls us to a high calling of loving others. And we'll look at that this evening. But let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do stand in awe at the great love with which you have loved us. What kind of love this is that that we would be your children. Those who deserve hell, who deserve just punishment, who were your enemies. You looked on from before the foundation of the world with love, desiring us to be your children. So much that that you would send your son to make that happen, that you would send him to die so that we may live. We, We just can't understand why you would do that except that it's just who you are. It's just who you are. You are loving. You are love. Lord, I pray that we would get a a deeper understanding of that. More glimpses of your love and grace towards us. As we know that that is absolutely life-changing. As we read earlier in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ controls us. So we no longer live for ourselves. Lord, help us to not be worried about fitting in with the world as the world is on a totally different path and a totally different family. And those who are currently unbelievers do not have these great privileges of adoption, at least not yet. But I pray, Lord, that you would draw people unto yourself so that they too may be part of this family, that we can walk together in serving you and pleasing you as our Father. And I pray this evening that as we look further into your word, (laughs) They would use that to make us more effective in loving one another. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.